Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Kathleen Rooney is the author of the novel Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk and is a founding editor of Rose Metal Press and a founding member of Poems While You Wait. Her latest novel, Share Me and Major Whittlesley, which Bookless Raves is imaginative and audacious, a celebration of animal intelligence, and a tribute to altruism and courage. Let's join Penguin editor Margot Weissman in conversation with author Kathleen Rooney. I was in a bookstore last weekend in Massachusetts and was so excited just watching the customers walk around and pick out their beach reads and couldn't help but think I can't wait for about a month from now when Jeremy Major Whittlesey is on shelves. Um, I think it's such an excellent summer read um, because it's so transporting and sweeping and beautiful and emotional, but it's also like so educational in a very fun, not dry way at all. Um, I don't know. I love reading fiction where I feel like I'm learning something, particularly historical fiction. Um, And the amount of research that you did and how you just integrated it so seamlessly into the book is just astounding. Um, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that process was like. I'll, I guess, start by saying that I, too, kind of am a fan of books that um, teach me and entertain me. I think You know, I teach at DePaul University and I often, when I'm teaching poetry especially, tell my students about Horace, the Latin poet, who says that the purpose of poetry is to delight and instruct. And I write poetry too, but I think, you know, at the time when Horace was writing, there weren't the genres that there are today. So while he was talking about poetry, I think it applies broadly to any kind of writing. Um, so I, you know, I think the story of Cherami on its face is already sort of automatically entertaining or surprising. Um, and just in a nutshell, Cherami is this, uh, pigeon, this real life homing pigeon who was famous in the late 1910s, right after World War I, for saving a group of soldiers called the Lost Battalion. And so she flew this message that, um, sort of preserved the lives of these American soldiers from a friendly fire incident. And so I think as soon as I heard that story, I was hooked. Um, I'm an animal lover. I find pigeons fascinating. And then when I began to do the research, that's when the sort of Charles Whittlesey part of the title, um, Sharon Me and Major Whittlesey comes in. They're sort of a match set. Um, and I think where I did, you know, the, the majority of the historical research was sort of around him specifically and the Lost Battalion, and then sort of like the bigger division of soldiers from all over Manhattan that he was a part of, um, and just kind of how they ended up where they did. So I think um, I'll sort of wrap that answer up for now by saying that um, my favorite kind of historical fiction is where it wears its research lightly, and it doesn't get too nonfiction-y or bog itself down with all the stuff that the author obviously came to know in the writing process. And so I tried really hard to do a ton of research. Um, And then this is a trick I learned from my spouse, Martin C., who's also a writer who tends toward history. Um, I did like a bunch of research. I have this like 250 page research document that I typed up and then just sort of like almost never looked at again. 
Well, that really is the best way to sort of internalize it. So it feels organic and it feels like you are just living in the world of the novel and then giving it to us. Um, I know you read a lot about Charles Whittlesey's life and even sort of like documents from people who knew him kind of about his personality. So in that way, you had a little something, a little bit of a jumping off point for making his character come alive, um, which I think you did exceptionally well. But for sure, me, you don't have that, right? Because she's a pigeon. Um, and we just know nothing about her consciousness. Um, how did you develop her character? Did you, did you always know who she was, this kind of like wry, erudite, but also irreverent voice? Or did that kind of come to you over time? That's a, a great question. Um, yeah, so with Cherami, I think her voice developed pretty early on because one of the things that I knew that the pigeon point of view was going to give me that I couldn't get from any other type of character was this, um, I mean, the obvious joke is like, bird's eye view, haha. But truly, this distance, right, a, a character who's first person but who's not a human is going to be able to weigh in on human activity, but with a degree of remove that's going to allow that gap to contain like critique sometimes, and then also humor sometimes and bewilderment. And so I, I knew that I wanted her to be pretty um, smart, but also a little unsure of why humans do what they do. And so I think that's where that wryness and that wittiness came in because the big thing I didn't want to do with Sharami was make her kitschy or make her a cartoon. Um, I think some people might hear like pigeon point of view and you know roll their eyes and worry that it's going to be cutesy and I didn't want to do that um, and it might sound weird but it was similar to when I wrote Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk where I was very aware that I didn't want this you know 85 year old woman to sound like a comic strip or like a caricature of you know sassy old lady um, so I felt very similar with Sharon Me that I wanted her to have that intelligence. And then I think just in terms of, I always like to give a shout out to, you know, research and writers who came before me, the author long, long dead, um, Marion Cothren, C-O-T-H-R-E-N, wrote this amazing children's book about Sharon Me that came out in, I want to say 1934, 1935. And she was just writing, it's nonfiction, it's a chapter book, it's for kids. So there was no first person share on me, but I think that there was this sort of droll and dry and effortlessly intelligent style of writing that uh, was popular in the 30s, even for children. And I think Marion Catherine helped me kind of get in the zone that I needed to be for share on me's voice. I didn't know that. And I love that. I love that there is this writer that you channeled a little bit in kind of perfecting and honing her voice. Do you think, do you think animals have senses of humor? Like I'm trying to, she, Sarah Me is so funny and I'm trying to think like, what, what do animals think is funny and how does her humor differ from ours? Yeah, I do. I really do. I, you know, I'm not a scientist. I haven't conducted a study, but I think that animals, you know, they have emotions. And so I think within that they have a sense of humor and, um, I don't know what kind of like wordplay they have because their language is inaccessible to us. But I like to think, I mean, dolphins, for example, are, you know, one of the higher order mammals who are, you know, their brains are huge. We, you know, we know kind of a lot about them and they play a lot and they have names. Like they have the squeaks they make, they um, 
call each other by names or by like a series of squeaks that apply only to a particular individual animal. So I think I would go so far as to say that I think animals could have wordplay, including pigeons. We just can't discern it. But like a more concrete example, um, I think a lot of people during the pandemic have gotten really into watching animals in their you know, socially distant walks around their neighborhood. And Chicago has a lot of urban wildlife, especially bunnies. Like the city has been taken over by bunnies and we're just lucky that they're benevolent because if they got together, we'd be in trouble, we'd be outnumbered. And we, we've we sort of taken to going to this one area in our neighborhood that we informally call Bunny Glen. And we watch the bunnies and they play. Like they, sometimes they'll just be sitting there and then all of a sudden for no reason, they're not scared, nothing has changed. They'll just like charge each other and like chase each other and roam around and like jump over each other. And we're just like, there can't, you know, some of it, some of the jumping and stuff is definitely like a mating thing, but some of it is just goofing around, just like having a fun time. And so I think absolutely animals find things funny. I know we've been talking a lot about publishing a book in this moment, also just living in this moment, being human in this moment. It's crazy time to be alive. There's so much going on. Um, I know that you have things you want readers to take away from this book. Have your aspirations for what people will take away from the book changed at all in the past few months? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, as you know, as an editor, one of the sort of more interesting and out of control aspects of publishing is always that, you know, when an author writes a book, it's going to be a very different time than when that book comes out. And, you know, as an editor, when you, you know, accept a book and work on it, that's going to also be very different than when the book gets into the hands of readers. And so I think, you know, most of the stuff I hope people will get, which I'll, I'll say, is stuff that was always there that I wanted them to get. But now I think in a way that I couldn't predict, it's even bigger. And so I think two big things, um, one that's kind of a major Whittlesey thing and one that's kind of a Cherami thing. Um, the Whittlesey thing is that he struck me as an incredible hero, not just for what he endured, right? These five days in this place called The Pocket where they were without food, without water, tons of wounded men, dying men, friendly fire, being tormented by the Germans, just this ordeal that's super hard to even imagine how bad it must have been, he succeeded by being patient and by being kind of passive. They couldn't retreat. They couldn't advance. They sort of had to wait until they got help. And it was unclear the extent to which help was coming. And with the friendly fire incident, there was even a time accidentally where their own people were harming them. And I think in a perverse way, that's sort of pandemic-y, where we have, you know, a leadership and a president who not only aren't helping us, but are at times harming us. Um, so I don't want to get too on the nose or get preachy about it, but I think that Whittlesey's heroism of being patient and waiting and doing what he could to help others and keep their spirits up um, and understanding that everyone truly was in it together is something that I'm thinking about even more now. And then the Cherami aspect, you know, of course, writing from an animal perspective, I couldn't help, I guess, but think about global warming and climate catastrophe and sort of what we as humans, the supposedly highest order, you know, according to old hierarchies uh, of animal life on the planet, what we're doing to other animals and what we're doing to the planet itself. And again, it's not a 
climate change book overtly. You know, nobody in 1918 knew really much about like the greenhouse effect. Um, it wasn't mainstream like it is now. Uh, but I think, you know, it's hard for me to think of Jeremy now without thinking of, you know, not to be such a bummer, but there's a lot of stuff happening. Um, you know, the pandemic is this mini crisis that's still surrounded, almost like a burrito of a crisis, right? That's like wrapped in this bigger crisis that is climate catastrophe. And so I think listening to animals now and listening to non-human life is even more important than, than it's ever been. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I've also found myself just gravitating towards animal content in a way. I, have, I mean, I'm also an animal lover, but particularly now, I just feel like it's important um, to be in tune with the other beings that we share this planet with. Um, have there been other animal narrated or very close third person, excuse me, third animal books that you have taken inspiration from? Uh, Charlotte's Web, I think, is an incredible book. And it's an omniscient narrator where the, uh, you know, perspective jumps all knowingly from, you know, Fern, the human character, into the animal characters and just sort of all around all the people who are in that farmyard situation. And I think that book was really influential to me. I think E.B. White does a great job of making it it's a funny book. It's a crushingly sad book. So I was really aspiring to, I guess, toy with people's emotions in the best possible way in the way that I felt like E.B. White is able to, to do that in Charlotte's Web. And then um, I think, you know, a book that I, I recently revisited some of it just to make sure that it, it like held up. I haven't reread the whole thing, but Watership Down. I love the way that he gives the, the bunnies sort of... Um, almost like a subversive quality, like they're cute, but he doesn't deny the animal's strangeness, which I think is what I tried to do with Cher Ami. Like she, you know, I didn't do anything goofy, like, you know, there's no dialect. She's not like me, a pigeon, me don't understand human, but like, you know, she, she's different than humans, right? And I think domestic animals are especially interesting in that way, or urban wildlife, where we get to see them a lot more than we see things like you know, tigers or sharks, um, but they're still very different than us and there's still that mystery. And I think Watership Down for me shows, you know, he anthropomorphizes them, but he also just lets the fact of rabbit strangeness really be present. So I think those two were really big for me. Do you ever watch BoJack Horseman? I love BoJack Horseman, <laughs> yes. Yes. When you were talking about the the bunnies and Watership Down and animal strangeness and anthropomorphizing versus letting them be animals, I think the brilliant thing about that show is the balance between the times when they are really animals and then the times when they have this almost human consciousness. Yes, yes. We I, I love that. That was like one of my favorite TV experiences ever. And I think what as I was watching it, I'm, I'm like in the room with my bookshelf that has it right now. I won't go grab it, but there was this French artist whose name was Granville, and he did kind of like a proto-Bojack Horseman thing where he became very famous for these like satirical drawings of animals doing kind of human things. And he, again, used that strangeness like you're talking about of sort of being like, you know, foxes are kind of human in some ways, but what happens when we like kind of exploit and get humorous about how like they are like us, but they're not like us. And so it's these drawings of animals being 
you know, pompous or wise or like wearing clothes or like doing these very sophisticated Parisian things. And I think, I don't know if the people who made Bojack are aware of Granville, but it seemed like they could have been because it was great in the same way. Um, what was the most fun part of writing this book? The most fun part, I think, was getting to write Cher Ami's, um like cohort of fellow pigeons. There's a lot of pigeon minor characters. And I think uh, her love interest, Baby Mine, this really, you know, beautiful, brave pigeon from America. That was really fun. Uh, and Buckshot, who's kind of her basket mate, who's this luckless white pigeon. You know, it's white pigeons. It's funny. I mean, doves are pigeons, even though I think a lot of people are like, oh, doves are beautiful, but pigeons are gross. It's like they're the same. Um, and so normally uh, in civilian life, being a white pigeon is this prized, privileged thing. But of course, in a war situation, Buckshot being white is dangerous. He's easier to see. He's easier to shoot. He's easier to catch. So I had fun um, kind of playing with the personality of a bird who would be like that. And then there's one called President Wilson. All, almost all of these, I mean, I made up Buckshot and Baby Mine, but President Wilson was a real pigeon who was another famous Homer who, who delivered a lot of great messages. And so I had fun making him into this kind of haughty, sometimes pretentious, but ultimately pretty knowledgeable elder states pigeon who, you know, had been around for longer than the other pigeons and who could kind of tell them how the war was working and what to watch out for. Um, and he too ended up stuffed and, you know, kind of celebrated after his death. So I think playing with the pigeons was the most fun for me. Obviously there's some degree of predetermined plot to your book since it is based on this true historical story but was there anything that sort of surprised you in the writing I mean I imagine you had some idea of where you were going to take it because the story was there but was there anything sort of unexpected that happened during the writing process that surprised you I mean that's a great question in terms of writing something that's based on a true story where kind of like I was saying with the research um, it's helpful because you have this like outline. I mean, you know, in the case of this book, I won't like spoil it, but I knew how things ended up historically for both Cherami and for Major Whittlesey. And so I had an end point to write towards. So that was kind of predetermined. But then within that, I had a lot of leeway as to how to get them there. And so I think the thing that um, surprised me most or that I, I got especially inventive with was this character, Bill Cavanaugh, who's one of my favorite characters, he's the pigeon man, the pigeon handler uh, with the Lost Battalion. And, you know, there's several, any group of soldiers would have had several pigeon men because they obviously wanted to build redundancy in because people would get killed constantly. So you didn't want to have just one. Um, but I made him kind of the best. And he's a pure fiction. Um, there was no real Bill Cavanaugh. And I kind of tried to make him this to me, he's the character that has the closest relationship to the birds. And, you know, I kind of show the other two pigeon men as being fine. They're not like mean to pigeons, but they're just kind of doing their job. Whereas Bill is like a pigeon fancier. And so I did a lot of research on how popular pigeon racing was or just raising homing pigeons. And so I made Bill be this sort of like working class Irish American guy from Hell's Kitchen, which at the time would have been like a truly terrible neighborhood, lots of crime, lots of poverty, um, but he would have had on his roof this pigeon coop just in the city, and this is kind of his his thing he does when he's not working, this place he goes as a refuge. Um, and so I think I had a really good time developing his character. I knew I wanted him to be this like sweet, almost preternaturally gentle 
man, but I think I'm just interested in how rare gentleness is often in men, or at least in like cishet men, um, just because it's so discouraged. And so I wanted to create this character who could be capable of this great gentleness, even in the middle of the stunning violence that was World War One. And so I, I think it makes sense that I have him be kind of the unrequited love interest of Whittlesey, because Whittlesey would have found him so rare and so refreshing and so unlike anyone else he really knew. Yeah, he's a great character. Um, I, there's this, like a brief passage where he kind of talks about Hell's Kitchen and like gives a little bit of atmosphere about the neighborhood. And I was thinking, or I loved that because when I first read your novel at work, um, our offices are pretty much in Hell's Kitchen and it's very different now <laughs> than it used to be. Um, so many just great historical details. Um, I know we talked a little bit about the research and how you kind of put it aside, but was there anything you didn't get to use that you just loved, like a nugget that was so fun and it didn't make it into the book? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, sort of toward the end where I'm wrapping stuff up, I kind of had this um, set of details about like the other men in the Lost Battalion. And it did, you know, my agent gave me the feedback that it got a little too montage or a little too, you know, tying everything up neatly. So I think it was a, a piece of great feedback, but there was just a lot of stuff about sort of, and, and I touch on it, but I don't get the specifics, but the aftermath of the Lost Battalion, like the men who survived and kind of what became of them. Um, and I read that they always had this banquet, George McMurtry, who's a character in there, who's kind of Whittlesey's, he's older and he's the only guy in the book who's really been in a previous conflict, um, but he's like the second in command. He's Whittlesey's right hand, basically. He survived too, and he was sort of the civic-minded guy who each year organized a Lost Battalion banquet in New York City um, and invited, you know, everyone who was still alive and everyone who wanted to do it, which, you know, many of them chose not to, but many of them did, um, could come and they would, you know, always like eat a feast and drink a toast and remember their, you know, gone comrades or whatever. Um, and one of the machine gunners in the um, Lost Battalion who died, um, Peabody, uh, who is in the book, he's a minor character, his fiance was so um, bereft at his death that every year for this banquet, she wouldn't go, but she would send a bouquet of flowers that would sit at the place where Peabody would have always been sitting. And then this was, you know, a thing at the banquet. And that, I mean, I think it's a great detail. It's really beautiful, but it goes way too far down into a rabbit hole that takes us away from the other characters. And there's already so much tragedy that I, you know, like Lisa was like, you can't, no. Um, That's one of those details <laughs> though that, could be a whole novel into itself. Like I even just hearing you talk about it right now, I'm just seeing the image in my head of the flowers at the empty spot. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you could write it as, you know, I, I don't know her name because in all the books, it was just, you know, Peabody's fiance. Um, but I think a book from her perspective, I mean, I think that's one of the things that fascinated me too, as a, a kid and as, you know, an ongoing adult about World War One is just the way that it changed social life. Um, just, you know, 10 million soldiers were killed in World War One, which is like a mind-boggling figure. But when you think about it, that was like a whole generation of, of marriage-age young men. And so I remember being told um, by older relatives who kind of remembered that, you know, they all seem to have these like, you know, maiden aunts was the phrase who, you know, had these prospects of marriage that were completely destroyed because there was, like, no one left 
to marry. Um, and so I think, you know, what, what happened to Peabody's fiance? Like, did she find someone else? Did she not? Like, what was her, how did it change her life? The character of Marguerite, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I can't remember. Is she real? Um, she's real, but I didn't know that much about her. So she, she really was sort of this um, sister-in-law figure to, so Whittlesey, you know, in his civilian life is this Wall Street lawyer and one of his best friends is also a lawyer. And so, you know, Whittlesey stands up in his wedding and, you know, also Marguerite was reported in newspaper articles of the time is also standing up in the wedding. She's the sister of this law partner. And so that's one of those moments in the research where I was like, aha, I can do something with her because there's just not that much detail, but she seemed intriguing. Um, and she was also one of the people who was asked for comment, you know, after Whittlesey's story kind of concluded. And so I think that, you know, I had a good time sort of imagining who Whittlesey's friend would be and this kind of like single woman, you know, not to get too box fishy about it, but I did make her an advertising person just because I was like, what would this single woman in 1918 be doing in Manhattan to support herself? And so I don't know if that's true or not. It didn't say what she did, but I was like, I'm just going to give her a career in advertising. The thing that's so remarkable about your writing is to me, there's no discernment between the stuff that's true and that's not. Like I just said, I was like, I can't remember if Margarita is real or not. I don't know. You just make everyone come alive in this spectacular way. And even if, even if a character just gets sort of a brief description or one scene, um, you're able to endow them with so much humanity. I really end up caring about everyone in the book. Um, and I don't know, I think that's just like a really rare talent as a writer. I don't think it's something you can learn. I just think it's something that's special about you as an author. Ah, thank you. I think, you know, I try to do it in all my books, but it's something that I think was really important to me in a book about war was to make all the people and all the animals really count because I think, you know, war again is so mind boggling and so abstract and unfathomable on certain levels that, you know, you hear 10 million soldiers and 10 million civilians, you know, died and, and how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of animals. And that's sort of, you feel something, but it's more intellectual. So I wanted in the book to make sure that everyone who kind of came into the narrative felt important. And so that if something bad happened to them, it would feel like a true loss or like a true waste or a, a sort of missed opportunity. And I think one of my favorite other minor characters, you know, I talked a lot about the pigeon minor characters, but there were so many great individual men from the Lost Battalion who kind of like Marguerite, I would see their name in passing and just get a little bit about them. But, you know, they're sort of lost to us now, but um, Zip Sapaglia, who's one of these, um, you know, he's an Italian immigrant who comes to the Lost Battalion. He doesn't know English and he gradually learns it in the course of like trying to go to battle, which is wild when you think about it and trying to understand orders. Um, but it was fun to develop him into something more and to like give him those traits of like heroism for fetching water um, and sort of, I won't spoil it, but like the comment he gives at the end when he's an old man and, you know, a documentarian comes around and asks him like, what do you think about it now? So it was, it was fun to make even like the tiniest characters have a personality. What are you reading these days? Yeah, I love this question. Um, I used to be a bookseller. I worked at Anderson's Bookshop um, in Downers Grove and in Naperville back when I was in undergrad. And so I love 
being asked what I'm reading in a sort of recommendation context. And so um, a book that I read like a couple weeks ago, time is weird now, um, that I recommend to everyone is White Blood, A Lyric of Virginia. And it's by Kiki Petrosino, who's a poet primarily. Um, I think this book is kind of hybrid. It's poetry, but it's also got an essayistic quality. And she is sort of writing about Virginia, the state, and Virginia, the Commonwealth, and its history as sort of the home of Monticello and Thomas Jefferson. And of course, Thomas Jefferson's history of, you know, being this founding father, but also the slave owner, um, his relationship with Sally Hemings, where, you know, he had children who were property, just this sort of wild contradiction in this person. And then Kiki is coming at it from that historical perspective, but also from her own perspective as a mixed race person who's kind of living in the um, you know, upper South and sort of her position with that. And it's just, it's sad and it's funny and it's angry and it's so good. And I'm going to teach it in my, uh, advanced poetry class next spring. Cause it's just, it's so not just the content, but the way she writes, she's just an incredibly good writer. Um, so I recommend that very, very highly. And then I just finished, uh, W3. And I think that's how you say it. It's like the title is just W-3. And it's by the Chicago writer, Betty Howland, who's, she's dead now. She died in 2017 and she was pretty decently known. I mean, she won a MacArthur grant and stuff in her lifetime, but she sort of fell out of print as can so often happen. I think, I mean, that's one of the things I think about all the time as a writer and also an editor is, you know, stuff that's super famous doesn't always stay famous or stuff that's good doesn't always get the recognition it deserves at the time it's new. And I think she's a little bit of both. And Anyway, she, she's just this great writer. She writes from this kind of Jewish perspective, this like West side of Chicago in the 60s sensibility that I think we get a lot of that kind of thing, you know, kind of earlier and from a masculine point of view with um, like Saul Bellow, but we don't always hear it from the woman's perspective. So anyway, W3 is this book that a public space is reissuing. They're bringing her back into print, which I'm so grateful to them for doing. And it's about her time after her suicide attempt in the 60s uh, on a psychiatric ward at the University of Chicago Teaching Hospital down in Hyde Park. And it's so good. It's, it's funny. It's dark. It's angry. It talks so much about race and class. And I think it doesn't come out until January. It was going to come out in July, but then the pandemic. Um, but it, as a Chicagoan, but I think anyone will get this, it was just amazing to me to see how sort of the foundations of the big structural problems that we're still grappling with as a city in 2020 are all things she observes so trenchantly in this one psychiatric ward in the late 1960s. Um, it's, everyone should read it. Um, and then three is my favorite number, so I'll do, I'll do a third one. Um, and this is the book that I was mentioning at the beginning that I scooped up at Half Price Books, and it's by Paula Fox, who... Yeah, people, you know, I think really love desperate characters. And she kind of had that moment back in the early 2000s when I think like Jonathan Latham and Jonathan Franzen were recommending her and kind of getting her back into print. But it's this book called Poor George. And it's about this sort of unhappy teacher at like a fancy prep school in Manhattan. He and his wife have just moved out to the suburbs and are kind of trying to do the, you know, life in the country American dream thing. Um, and a sort of delinquent boy, like a, a dropout from, you know, a local high school breaks into their house. And instead of turning him into the police, George tries to like help him. 
Um, and I'm still in the first quarter of the book, but I think it's not going to go well. I think it's going <laughs> to go badly. Um, and it's just the book is so atmospheric. It's almost to a, an absurd extent, just so full of late 60s, sleazy anomie. And it's fun to read about people being miserable for really good reasons that are, are not that similar to the reasons that we're many of us miserable right now. So it's it, there's some kind of company there. Um, well, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for making the time. This is definitely the most fun I've had in months. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. It's so good to see your face always. It's so and good hear to your see voice, you too. So and you. I can't wait. Everyone, you got to read Share Me and Major Whittlesey. It's a fantastic book. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.